Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round we're doing the brand new Apple TV series, Masters of the Air, which means we'll be talking about history that goes back to World War II. We'll be talking about pop culture, or at least films, that go back over a hundred years, and a specific trend that is 25 years old. That's quite a lot from a series that's literally airing right now on Apple TV. So, I'm not going to start with the history, and spoiler alerts for this, I will be talking about World War II. If you don't want to know how that ends, you might want to not listen to the end of this podcast. Let's get on with it. Yes, get on with it! In case you don't know, Masters of the Air is about B-17 crews, heavy bomber crews, American flyers of World War II flying over Europe. So it's about the European campaign to reclaim Europe against the Nazi war machine. And it's seen very much from an American perspective. This is historically accurate for the record. And I'll come on to more of that, obviously, later on. But going back to World War One, all the films at that stage were obviously black and white and silent. It's Greg the editor leaping in here from behind the scenes with a small confession that, that some of you may enjoy. I, as you know, tend to drop some little sound effects into these podcasts. I have just spent five minutes trying to find a lovely silent movie sound effect to demonstrate this moment in the podcast. Silent movies do not work as sounds. But what was interesting is, while World War I was raging, movies were being made about it. Some of them were even comedies. And therefore, the idea of the war film is over a hundred years, comfortably. You will probably find somebody digging out something earlier than 1914 about the US Civil War, for example. Those sort of things exist. So the idea of putting war onto the screen is as old almost as the actual creation of moving pictures, motion pictures. So, yeah, it's been around a while. And as I said, you know, sometimes they're comedy, sometimes they're very serious dramas. You get the introduction of of sound, and that adds a whole new layer of realism. Come in, Captain Mercier. Any luck? 
I think I have the information you require. Here is my full report on the German coastal defences in northern and western France. Splendid. Because watching people blasting away in the silent movie doesn't get the same idea as the soundscape. Don't look up! What's interesting is when you get to a movie like The Longest Day, filmed in the 1960s, very much in the era of colour, it's the recreation of the D-Day landings, Operation Overlord, seen from multiple different perspectives. It's a remarkable movie and it's got almost everybody famous in the world in that one at that time. Everybody from John Wayne to Sean Connery. We're not here to talk about that, but the interesting thing is to make it feel realistic to audiences of the 1960s, all of it was filmed either on location or in studios in the 1960s. And yet it was filmed in black and white because the vast majority of footage from World War II, particularly in the European theatre, is black and white. So by reproducing elements of this war in an artificial colour. Nobody saw in black and white in World War II, but we're used to the black and white footage. So that shows you the level of realism that they were trying to achieve in a film where what's interesting about all the war films in the 1960s is a lot of the movies, for example, Richard Todd in The Longest Day, he is actually on Pegasus Bridge which he genuinely was in 1944. Now, he's actually playing his commanding officer because, in his own words, nobody would want to play a role as small as his. He's being modest. But also, he brought his actual paratrooper cap from that battle to the actual studio for the filming. So it doesn't get more realistic than that. And that's one of the coolest sentences you'll ever get in all of film history. I'm getting distracted but we'll come back to him in a roundabout way in a minute. There was this attempt in the 1960s to show World War II in Technicolor and with the soundscapes, etc. And you've obviously got people in these movies who genuinely fought in World War II. Problem is, we're talking about 20 years later, and therefore they're getting on a bit. David Niven, who also served in World War II, he made the comment when making The Guns of Navarone that everybody was almost at retirement age rather than at soldier age in that movie. And you get this weird disconnect that you have the likes of Lee Marvin or Jimmy Stewart. There's a long list of Hollywood stars who served their country in World War II who saw combat that there was, they put themselves in harm's way, they believed in their cause, and yet the movies themselves shied away from the blood and horror because of regulations in Hollywood at that time. And therefore, it isn't until you get to the likes of the 1990s where all these people, maybe a few of them are still alive, but they're certainly way too old to actually be in these movies. And you start getting gritty realism in the 1980s with the Vietnam films. But Vietnam was the dirty war. It was the nasty war and therefore to show the blood and snot and crying and swearing it fitted Vietnam but the irony is a lot of these people had never served in the army before so you're getting more realistic movies and yet the people in it are less combat efficient than the people you saw in the 1960s a weird quirk of Hollywood there but when you've got the 
gritty realism of things like casualties of war or born on the 4th of July or platoon, you get the idea. What Steven Spielberg did in 1998 was take that gritty realism, that attention to historic detail, and put it back into World War II with the seminal movie Saving Private Ryan. Someday we might look back on this and decide that Saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful mess. Now, when there are these lists of the top 10 greatest war films or things like that, the 100 greatest war films of all time, exactly what hits number one and number two is always up for debate. It flip-flops between Apocalypse Now and Saving Private Ryan. But it is, to Spielberg's immense credit, I was there in the cinema with friends in 1998 watching Saving Private Ryan. And in the words of one of my friends, when the front of the landing ship comes down and the, the bullets just rip into those troops, my friend said he could feel himself nervous in that scene. He knows that obviously D-Day works for the Allies, but compared to the longest day, people get shot and they just fall over in the longest day. But in this, we see a man looking around completely dazed and you see him picking up his own arm. You see people lying there trying to keep their insides still inside them. The blood and gore and people begging for their mothers. It is a scene of sheer horror, more horrible than your average horror movie. And yet there's a part of you thinking, you guys have to get up that beach because we can all agree the Nazis are pure evil. And therefore Spielberg used that brutality, but whereas somebody like Oliver Stone had used it to show war is futile, war is horrible, Americans are the bad guys in this situation, Spielberg brilliantly used it as a juxtaposition to say, yeah, this is horrible and awful. This is the industrial scale of killing, but we needed to do that killing because of what was going on in Europe. And it won all the Oscars, and quite rightly too. Although it didn't win Best Picture, it went to Shakespeare in Love instead, and fast-forwarding 26 years, nobody turns around and talks about Shakespeare in Love being one of the greatest films of all time. Oh, sort of a weird fact here, or weird sidebar here. Got into an argument with a woman who really, really tore into me. I didn't realise this was a hot take. I just simply said that Shakespeare was a really good writer and that his original Taming of the Shrew is better than 10 Things I Hate About You. Again, there are simply more fans of Shakespeare and Taming of the Shrew than there are about 10 Things I Hate About You. I didn't think that was a hot take, but she felt personally attacked and really ripped right back into me. Also, I had the audacity to say that a play isn't the same thing as a book, structurally, or indeed at what gets awards and things like that. I just didn't think that Shakespeare being a good writer and a play isn't a book were particularly hot takes or a particularly vicious attack on another human being. But boy, did I get both barrels back again. Hey-ho. Anyway, going back to Shakespeare and love, I don't know if I'm going to be viciously attacked on this one. I just don't see a lot about it on social media, in discourse, in pop culture, whereas Saving Private Ryan, yes, absolutely. Once you've got Saving Private Ryan, it rewrote the language of war films. Famously, a few years later, you get Black Hawk Down, and Ridley Scott described it 
as two hours of the beach scene in Saving Private Ryan. And that's a pretty good description of Black Hawk Down. In fact, you could argue there's a bit too much shooting in it. Anyway, you've got Ryan and it clearly, it completely changes the landscape of war movies. But you might be going, you haven't even talked about Master of the Air yet, Jem. It's like, yeah, 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 okay. Uh, but for the record, I've literally just finished watching the first episode and I've started recording this. And I feel I am capable. I may not have seen the whole thing, but the thing about history is I know what happens next, okay? After the success of Saving Private Ryan, there was a huge appetite for more. Now, the story of Saving Private Ryan was wrapped up in the movie. But what had already happened after the success of Apollo 13 is there was a TV series about the space race and NASA where they reproduced actual scenes from the NASA series of programs in the 1960s and turned it into a TV series. And it was extremely well regarded and it was introduced by Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks was obviously the star of Saving Private Ryan. He was also one of the producers. And so he and Spielberg became the producers of the same format of that NASA series, Race to the Moon, I believe it was called. And it was turned into a show based on a Stephen Ambrose book called Band of Brothers, which is the true story of a group of paratroopers, Easy Company, and how they go from their basic training all the way through to the liberation of a concentration camp and ending up in Berchtesgaden in eastern Germany. And it's the story of these men going through it. And it's, in my opinion, one of the greatest miniseries ever made. If you stick a gun to my head, I'd say probably Chernobyl's better. But we are talking about two of the greatest miniseries of all time. Band of Brothers, the music, almost puts a tear in my eye every time I hear it. It's also one of these things where, because of all these young men, they go on to bigger and better things. You've got Tom Hardy, you've got Michael Fassbender, and a whole bunch of other people as well. But you've got some big stars in very small roles in that one. Simon Pegg's there as well. So this comes out in 2001. Clearly, after the huge success of Saving Private Ryan, very quickly they put this into production, and it's at a scale and quality that you've just never really seen before when it comes to war movies and, and war stories, particularly on TV, because they don't tend to have the budgets. But we are now at the cusp of the big-budget TV show. This was a co-production between the BBC and HBO, and it was an absolutely massive hit, and you can buy it on dvd and blu-ray it's just it's one of these things where i've i've watched many many times i showed my kids it and because it's long it probably isn't a movie well it isn't because it was a tv series but i'm going to say it's if you were to stitch it all together it's very long you need some rest breaks in it but it's probably the greatest war movie ever because you you've got time to see these characters develop and the format of it is at the beginning of each episode you have these old men talking about their experiences in the war. And then each episode has almost like an angle of the war. Like there's an angle about battlefield medicine. There's one episode that's largely about training. There's another one about trauma. One about the Holocaust. And so it's, it's even though you could argue, guys in trenches sort of like shooting at the Germans again and again and again. Well, 
sometimes they're almost freezing in Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge. And the screenwriters were brilliant enough to sort of piece it all together that it was different each time. And this is no doubt, obviously, down to Stephen Ambrose's original book, which is amazing. And just all the effort and love went into it. It launched a whole bunch of careers. And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, quite rightly, and what's clever is those old men, only at the end of the last episode do they put up their names. So you then realise, oh my God, that's X and Y, etc. It's a brilliant way of doing it because you're not quite sure who's going to live and who's going to die. And indeed, one guy who you assume died, you find out has lived to a ripe old age just without his legs. He got his legs blown off in the Battle of the Bulge. It's like, wow, okay, fine. So... Well done, sir. Thank you for your service. It's just no notes. And also at the end of each episode, it would fade to black. And there was there was that classic thing at the end of like a, a movie based on facts, a page of information about this is what happened next, or these were the medals awarded, or these were the people who were saved, or the fact that Operation Market Garden was a complete disaster. Those sorts of things. Absolutely brilliant. But then it took a long time for anybody to come up with People wanted a band of brothers too, but you couldn't do it with them. And so what came out in 2010 was the Pacific, which was band of brothers in the Pacific region, following Marines. There were no Marines in the European area. Those were paratroopers and regular army and will be coming onto the Air Force in a minute. I am getting there to Masters of the Air, honest. But in the Pacific, it was very different because the war there was very different. There was far more... R&R, there was far more time sitting on ships waiting to do the infamous island hopping of the Pacific Theatre. The problem, however, with the Pacific is with Band of Brothers, you genuinely followed the same people from the time they started training all the way through to the end of the war as they went on this campaign. The thing is, nobody did all of the bits of the Pacific campaign. So if you've got Guadalcanal, you can't have exactly the same people at Iwo Jima because the units just didn't fight that. A few people did switch around and so on and so forth. So it feels more bitty. And once again, the format's pretty similar. They sort of explain the situation. They've got some of the older men talking about things. We are coming to the very edge of, of those combat soldiers still being alive in, in 2010. And I think a lot of people were just expecting Band of Brothers 2. It was doing its own thing. And when I revisited it about a year ago, I realized I liked it a lot more than I remembered. I think everybody was just a little bit like, hmm, not quite as good as Band of Brothers. And it's like, no, it's different. It is very, very good. And it delves more into the psychology this time around. You see the psychological toll it takes on the soldiers. And it's brutal. It really is. But the last episode where you see the guys and sort of what happened next. There's some real punch-the-air moments, and there's also incredible sadness in there as well. Then, you might go, hang on, this isn't part of anything else. I'm just going to briefly mention a movie, a rather forgotten film, 2012's Red Tails. This is the true story of the first black combat pilots of World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, because they were trained in a place called Tuskegee in America. And their airplanes had a distinctive red tail to them, hence the term red tails. And it was meant to be directed by George Lucas. It ends up being produced by George Lucas. And it's a story of African-American history. The problem is, you've kind of seen it all before. 
and it turns out that racism is bad, which I think by 2012 everybody already knew, and the, the script is awful. The opening scene where you hear the pilots talking to each other, it's, it's like from a B-movie of the 1950s, and yet this is coming out in 2012. George Lucas's strong point was never scripts, it must be said. And so it's one of these things where, okay, I see what you're doing, and I'm absolutely pro, and, and, and this is a classic example of a piece of African-American history that people didn't really know about that needs a movie to tell that story, to get it into the public consciousness. That I give 10 out of 10 to. It just wasn't particularly well done. And now we come to Masters of the Air 2024. So Band of Brothers 2001, Pacific 2010. So it's been 14 years since we've had one of these types of series. And it's clearly leaning very, all of the promotional material was all about from the people who brought you Band of Brothers. Now, this isn't HBO and BBC. This is all Apple. Again, Apple has been spending a lot of money on historical stuff. If you haven't noticed recently, I've done an episode on Killers of the Flower Moon. That had an advert because that was paid for by by Apple. That had an advert just before Masters of the Air. They also did Napoleon. And Napoleon will be coming back on. I suspect Napoleon, the director's cut, will be released before the last episode of Masters of the Air, so they can cross-pollinate between those. This is dad TV, isn't it? And admittedly, I am a father. They have been spending, well, I'm going to guess that the Masters of the Air budget it will be roughly the same as something like Band of Brothers, so this is a $100 million plus, so when you add up the $200 million each for those other films, they've spent more than half a billion dollars on historical stuff. So well done, Apple. I'm more than happy for you to be spending money on historical stuff. And therefore, a lot was riding on Masters of the Air. Whether or not it's led to an increase in subscriptions, I don't know. But people are talking about it. Again, Twitter is kind of ablaze on this. Problem is that now that we are 80 years plus away from these events, the people depicted in this series would be over 100 for most of them. And therefore, that talking head intro just isn't there. And the first episode, it took a while for it to calm down. And the first 20 minutes, I was a little bit annoyed. I'll be honest with you. It was sort of jumping around. It was trying to sort of get to the good stuff. And the other problem is, and this is why I'm bringing in Red Tails again, the thing I liked about Red Tails is when you've got B-17s and Mustangs flying around against Messerschmitts and etc, etc. All this kind of stuff was done, sort of, in the Battle of Britain. There were no B-17 flying fortresses in that, but you literally had Dorniers and Junkers and Spitfires and Messerschmitts, all this kind of stuff in the 1960s. And the Battle of Britain movie is a tour de force of the Battle of Britain. It's it's amazing, and a lot of the actual flying is in-camera, real planes flying around. It would Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a logistical nightmare to get all those planes up in the air at the same time and then start filming without them running out of uh, fuel. And there are, I happen to know, four B-17s that are still flight worthy and i'm assuming they used at least one of them in this in this film or in this series i should say but the thing and the reason why i'm going to bring red tails back again is so if you are going to show dog fighting in 2012 you're going to use cgi and the great thing about airplanes is you don't get that uncanny valley of like is that human is that not human it can absolutely replicate plates of metal absolutely fine and i liked the dog fighting choreography of red tails that was its high point really but what i'm finding interesting is no matter how much money they spent on masters of the air they haven't spent enough on the cgi because i think it's shonkier than red tails that is 12 years older than masters of the air i don't i mean clearly a lot of money and love and attention to detail has been spent on masters of the air but the the cgi just isn't that good You'll see better stuff in Andor. Now, I appreciate this is a vehicle that you might already recognize, and I appreciate we all know what the clouds look like in the sky as opposed to space, but it doesn't. I've seen good CGI of realistic, real things looking better than this, and I would imagine with, apparently, Apple's unlimited coffers, the CGI is the bit that lets this stuff down. Now, there are scenes where they're sitting there in the cockpits and they're, they're getting everything ready, and you can see the flaps going, and clearly that's a real B-17. But I seem to remember in Band of Brothers that they had a real Dakota, the transport planes that they would j- jump out of, and I think what they did is replicate the shot, so it looked like four of these airplanes taking off, where it's just one airplane taking off and uh, down a time-lapse or whatever. So they looked real. This is, a, this is, again, a problem that I'm not entirely sure that the CGI of Masters of the Air is better than the stuff that you saw, which admittedly wasn't the main part of the of the series, a band of brothers some 23 years ago. So, eh, that's the bit that gets me, and of course a lot of it's in the airplanes going along. Now, that said, it did settle down. The extended bombing sequence scene, which takes up the second half of episode one, you get so into it, you don't really notice the scenes until you get towards the end of that sequence. But it's a great nail-biting sequence. We then come on to the next problem. I've got 99 problems. That they are being historically accurate. And one of the things is that these are unpressurized heavy bombers of World War II. And that means you have to wear an oxygen mask. You've all seen them. And it's therefore quite hard to work out who's who. Now, it does help 
that in this climactic scene of this attempted bombing of U-boat pens in Bremen, in northern Germany, this was an absolutely true mission, and it ended up being scrubbed because of poor visibility. They weren't going to drop their bombs and potentially blow up a whole load of houses. They had to at least see the target to drop bombs. And so they went all the way across to Germany under flak fire once they crossed the channel. And then they get attacked by Messerschmitts. All of this stuff happened, and yet they weren't able to even carry out the mission. They weren't allowed to drop the bombs. It, it's, it's a beautiful bit of frustration that's going on. I will eventually get to actual history, but we're, we're not there yet. However, what has helped on this occasion, but with everybody with a face mask on, you're not quite sure who's who, but it does help that we've got perhaps the two biggest stars in, and I think this was probably deliberately picked, in this particular B-17. You've got Austin Butler, the guy who played Elvis in Elvis, who I reached out to on Twitter again, because for some reason we follow each other. I don't know why. He's, he's never really interacted with me, but I felt obliged to send him a message to say, hey, you know, you were great in this. And he is. He's absolutely luminous. He looks gorgeous. And it does help that his baby blues appearing out from above the oxygen mask. And sitting next to him is Barry Kyogen, the absolute hottest guy at the moment from, from Ireland. He is an amazing actor. I've loved him. Coming up, there'll be an episode about 71 where he, he's a young guy in, in 71. Because that's, that's a, probably a 10-year-old movie off the top of my head. This year, he's also been in Saltburn as well, which I hated. But 10 out of 10, it was a, he, he did a very committed performance there. And people are talking about him, and, and quite rightly too. He was in Dunkirk. He's sort of everywhere. He's a really talented actor. I uh, really rate him. Austin Butler, this year he's also having a bit of a year because he's in June 2. So, you, you know, he's out everywhere. People still remember him from Elvis. And both these guys are great young male actors. And therefore, you can at least hook into them. But I suspect as we go along the series, and certainly this was what it was like in the first bit of episode one, there will be times going, who's that? What's exactly going on? Oh, a guy, an anonymous guy's just died. And then you find out later, oh no, that was somebody I actually cared about. Fair enough. So the attention to detail can sometimes get in the way of actual drama, but no notes on that. I would rather they had actual attention to detail because when you've got Napoleon, you see what happens when the drama comes first and it can be very, very frustrating. Now that I have talked endlessly about the shows, and look, I would say that if you have an opportunity to have like a, I think a, Apple does things like, you know, a, a three month free subscription if you've got an Apple product or something like that, you could do a lot worse than watching Masters of the Air, Severance, Foundation, Silo, and obviously Napoleon when it gets on, and Killers of the Flower Moon. That will be some pretty good drama for you to be checking out. I would give Masters of the Air, with Band of Brothers and Pacific, I'd give them 10 out of 10. Currently, I'd give Masters of the Air 8 out of 10. I don't think that's going to really change because... Like I say, the, the CGI is distractingly average. It's not bad. It's just I've seen better. And, and with the amount of money being spent on this, why isn't it better? Right, done. So let's get into some actual history now. I keep mentioning B-17, B-17. It's The nickname of it is the Flying Fortress. It is a heavy bomber. It was the most heavily produced, mass-produced American heavy bomber of World War II. It was actually designed just before the war, came into service in 1938, so it was already a known weapons platform by the start of the war. They came over to Britain in 1943, and they had a crew of 10, 
and if you've ever if you put in your mind a world war ii heavy bomber you've probably either got a lancaster or a b-17 in your head both of them have four engines and they're bristling with guns there's the classic thing of you've got the ball gunner which is underneath it's a literally pivoting turret underneath and they show how it's an absolutely terrifying place to be you have to sit crouched for the entire 10-hour flight in this ball which sort of swivels around i mean it's very clever electronically done with these two 30 caliber brownings next to you uh probably deafens you every time you fire them but if that thing jams and this did happen in world war ii and then the, the wheels are out, you've got no option but to land that plane, which will crush that guy. So he has to be able to get out. It's a absolutely terrifying thing. You've got a tail gunner, you've got side gunners. It's bristling with various either 30 or 50 cal heavy machine guns, belt fed. And the idea is that these B-17s fly in close, tight formation. So the guns of one airplane can cover another airplane and they're constantly spraying out almost 360 degree direction heavy lead to protect themselves from these fighter planes that are much faster much more maneuverable and can attack at almost any angle if you didn't have that bull gunner underneath the airplane all the luftwaffe would do is just fly up at the airplanes and just mow them down so you need a real not even 360 but an almost infinite amount of cover arcs because it's it's you know i'm thinking on a vertical plane there but it, we've obviously got the z-axis as well because it's a three-dimensional space that's going on here so they are heavy bombers they have large payloads to give you an idea it's estimated that the b-17s contributed to 40 percent of the tonnage of bombs dropped on europe in world war ii which would put them at around about 640,000 tons of high explosives and incendiaries dropped on Europe. Now, the thing you might be thinking in the first episode is, oh my god, why are they flying in broad daylight at their targets? And this is the debate. See, by the time the USAAF arrive, that's the, that's the slightly weirdly named you know, we now talk about the U.S. Air Force, but in World War II, it was the United States Army Air Force. And what we have is the 100th Bombardment Group at RAF Thought Abbott in Norfolk. This is all true. This is all absolutely accurate. You see them arriving in 43, etc. But of course, arriving in 43 tells you that Britain, meanwhile, had been fighting for considerably more years than that. And the RAF, after fighting a defensive battle in the Battle of Britain, was now able to start bombing Europe. Because they were no longer under immediate threat of invasion, they could then send... You know, there were no bombers, heavy bombers, RAF bombers, involved in the Battle of Britain. Why would you send up a bomber which is just going to get shot down? That's what the RAF was doing to the Luftwaffe and picking off all their bombers. Although, interestingly, Germany never... And this is one of the reasons why the Blitz and the Battle of Britain... Battle of Britain was important in terms of stopping potential invasion. That was called Operation Sea Lion. But the Blitz in particular, the Germans only ever had medium bombers. They didn't have the sheer weight of explosives to wipe out London. You want to see how to do it right? Look at the RAF and the USAAF and you'll see and look at places like Dresden or Berlin. The sheer destruction of those wasn't carried out by artillery or by the Red Army. It was carried out by aerial bombardment. But 
the RAF, after years of hard-won lessons, had learnt that yes, the advantage of flying at day is you can see the targets more easily. But you are a sitting duck for everything, be it the anti-aircraft fire, the ACAT guns, all the way through to the fighter planes. So the RAF decided to do night raids. And the amount of casualties was dramatically reduced when the RAF went at night. Then the Americans turn up and they say, we're going to do it by day. And the RAF specifically advised them not to do this. They said, yes, there are all these advantages, but it comes at too high a cost. But America being America is like, well, we're going to do it our way. It's a little bit like in World War One, the allies, the British and French, had worked out completely new ways. The joint air arm, etc. You know, so basically using creeping barrages, using tanks and airplanes as cover for their infantry. This had taken years to develop and master on the Western Front. When the Americans arrived, they just did what the British and French had done in 1914 and suffered horrible casualties. And again, the British and French had evolved and tried to tell the Americans not to do it that way, and the Americans didn't listen. And then here we are, exactly the same problem happening in World War II. You should always listen to people with experience. It doesn't matter which country they're from, you might want to listen to them. They're not trying to cause you problems. And so the other thing you see in episode one, again, I know that this is coming, is you're seeing the very early phases of the American heavy bombardment strategy, which was to go off in these heavy formations unaccompanied by fighter planes. Now, the great thing about the Mustang fighter plane is it was a much longer range than the likes of the Spitfire, which by 1943-44, the Spitfire, as awesome as it was in the Battle of Britain, it was the Hurricane that largely won it because they were simply more of them than the Spitfire, and also the Spitfire didn't have the same range. Through World War II, you get this remarkable thing that you get something like a swordfish in 1940, which was a biplane, an open cockpit biplane, which managed to fire a torpedo and cripple the Bismarck. That's in 1940, and by 1945, you have jet and rocket aircraft on both sides. It wasn't just the Germans with jet aircraft. That shows you the massive improvements in avionics in World War II. At the moment, the US Air Force, I'm just going to call them, are sustaining really heavy damage. And then they will discover that when they go with fighter pilot coverage... Now, the fighter planes couldn't go as long range. If you're going all the way to somewhere like Berlin, that's too far for the fighter planes, even with extra fuel to get to. So what you're doing is, for most of the trip, you've got fighter plane coverage... Then you're on your own for a bit. Then you come back to, again, almost like an umbrella of fighter plane coverage. That's going to happen later. This evolution of strategies, we're seeing it in Ukraine right now. You know, back in the first year of 2022, everyone was talking about javelins, which are incredibly effective anti-tank weapons. But in 2023-4, people aren't talking about javelins anymore because they're really expensive. And they've discovered that a much cheaper POV drone can do exactly the same thing a javelin can and still take out a Russian tank. So there are these evolutions and new technologies that happen in all warfare. So what you've got with Masters of the Air is, is just like with Band of Brothers, you're going through the whole process. Now, they're sitting down in a cockpit, so you might not notice these things, but you will get the Tuskegee Airmen coming in, so you're going to see a rerun of Red Tails, hopefully done better with better scripts. But maybe the actual dogfights aren't as good, which is a little bit of a worry, but, but anyway... But RAF thought Abbott 
isn't an open-air museum. It's doing great business. It was actually used as part of the filming. And also, it's got an air museum where you can see what it was actually like with the 100th Bombardment Group in World War II. It was given back to the RAF in 1946 and was an open RAF base into the early 50s, but was never really used again. There are dozens of RAF bases that were built for World War II, be it for fighter planes or for heavy bombers, and they're just not used anymore. The last thing I'm going to say, actually, just before I do this, as always, please click subscribe. Please give us a review. Please tell a friend about us. Thank you very much. I'm at Jim Deducci on Twitter, X, or Threads. Tell me what you think. Give me ideas. Give me your opinions on the show as well. Maybe you think I'm being too harsh on the special effects, which is what CGI ultimately is. Please say hello, etc. Going a little bit back to, I said I'd go back to, to Rich Todd. He was also in the movie Dam Busters. He played one of the bomber commander. So this is about a true story of the RAF carrying out a night raid on the Ruhr Dams in Germany. And it's an amazing story of technology. And again, you, you go through the invention of the special type of bomb that was needed to try and detonate against the dams to the actual mission to then arriving back at base. And the actual mission itself was the influence to the trench run of the original 1977 Star Wars, which is pretty amazing fact there. But the reason why I'm mentioning this, like, hang on, this isn't the Americans. No, it isn't. But I saw a documentary with modern-day RAF personnel trying to replicate it, trying to reproduce it. And the point they made, and this is the thing I'd like you to remember in Master of the Air, is in the documentary they made the point that in all modern air forces nobody has a weapons platform like a b-17 flying fortress now i was lucky enough i used to live next to right next to now i just live only a, a mile or so away from raf northolt which is in west london and it's the only raf base built for the battle of britain that is still an raf base to this day it's also the closest one to central london so lots of interesting stuff happens there and I remember one time I was just sitting there on my own and I could always tell if it's a deep low drone, it's a military vehicle. I've seen Apache helicopters. I've seen Spitfires fly off uh, air shows and things like that. Amazing stuff flies in and out of that place. But there was one time when I was sitting at home on my own. It was so annoying. The rest of the family wasn't there. And I just heard this roaring thunder coming close. And I looked out the window and it's like, it's sunny. There's no reason why I'd hear thunder. And then I heard the windows rattling, which is odd because it's double glazing. Double glazing does not rattle. And this roar just got louder and louder and louder. So I ran out in front of the house. I got my phone out. And then flying over the school right next to my house came a B-17 flying fortress coming into land at RAF Northolt. And the noise was deafening. I've still got it on my phone. But the thing that really annoys me is it just doesn't get across how loud that thing was. But it was a sheer privilege. How many people have seen a B-17 coming into land, particularly nowadays? And it flew over me, not next to me, over me. It was just amazing. So anyway, anyway, so the point is these weapon platforms, be it a Lancaster bomber or a B-17 or Stratofortress or whatever... These types of weapon platforms, as it was said in the documentary, just don't exist anymore. Nowadays, you fire a cruise missile. Nowadays, you have a fighter bomber, like an, an F-16 or a tornado or whatever. There are loads of different types of, of, of fighter bombers there. And, you know, there are all these smart missiles, etc. And so there is just no aircraft in the air nowadays. I mean, yes, there are aircraft with lots of people on them, but they're like spying aircraft, etc. But actually, something to carry out a bombing command just doesn't exist anymore somebody's going to turn around and say what about b-52s yes 
but they're not bristling with all the guns. You've just got a very, very large jet aircraft that would fly over and carpet bomb Vietnam, or nowadays they would launch a cruise missile or something like that from them. Any kind of stealth bombers, like the, the B-117, there are loads of them, and the, the B-2, etc. There are loads of these kind of stealth bombers, but they just don't exist in the format of the B-17, where you've got 10 people who have to communicate with each other to get the mission done, to both protect the aircraft to get there and back again, but also you've got the bombardier who's trying to line everything up, etc. They do point out in the show, and I'm sure they'll go into it much more, these aren't guided munitions. You have it's this is physics. You have to work out how fast is the plane going, what's the wind speed, and you have to try and hit something with an unguided weapon. And going back to World War II, if you got within half a mile of the target, it was considered a close hit. So this puts the episode one into context when it's like we can't even see the target, there's no point dropping the bombs, because you you're gonna be off by miles. So the skill of being able to hit anything with a heavy bomber in World War II. This is why dropping 640,000 tons of bombs, that's just not going to be a thing moving into the future because it's just wastage. You're blowing up cows and civilian buildings as well. Nowadays, it's these sort of much more targeted munitions, so you, you ne simply need less of them to cause the same amount of potentially damage to the enemy, like hitting a, a U-boat pen, etc. So what you're seeing... It, what's interesting is we all know those scenes of the droning bombers flying over and the ack ack oh, you know, anti-aircraft fire, and it comes. We've all seen that in the movies, and yet it's very, very specifically of its time. Yes, there was a little bit of this in World War One. Zeppelins flew over London. It became known, obviously, much, much later as the first Blitz, and a hundred people in London died. But that is obviously small change compared to the 80,000 that died in World War II. And that is, again, small change compared to places like Dresden, etc. So what you've got is, in essence, a weapon of mass destruction. You know, nowadays, we do not tolerate civilian casualties. You could argue that Master of the Air is a slightly controversial series because you are showing a type of war that the modern world does not have the stomach for. But that is absolutely not taking away the sheer bravery of these men, where, again, I, the, one of the things I love about the series is when they land, they show you how much damage, how beaten up these B-17s are, and it'd be the same for a Lancaster bomber too, and then how quickly the ground crews could stitch them back together again. They were meant to do a little over 20 missions before they would be sent back home, but most didn't even get to 20. So it was almost like a death sentence. You had to be very lucky. I wouldn't get too attached to these people in this show because most of them ain't coming back again. That's it from me. And as always, another episode coming soon.